speaker is Cindy. Hi, everybody. My name is Cindy. I'm an alcoholic. Um, I'd like to thank Deborah, Devra, Patricia, Rich, and there's somebody else who called me today to make sure that I get here on time. And, you know, I just want to thank the Atlantic Group for having me. It's, it's an honor and a privilege to speak at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is an honor and a privilege to do anything for Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I'm here today by the grace of God, AA, uh, a sponsor, a home group, and I am forever grateful. Um, you know, I love structure. I, whenever I come to New York City, I uh, meet my girlfriend, Patricia. We come to your meeting. Um, so I have 10 minutes to tell you a little bit about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. So I will be quick. Um, you know, I'd like to extend a special welcome to anybody who's new to Alcoholics Anonymous. I want you to know that everything that is wholesome in my life is a direct result of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I got here, I was dying of untreated alcoholism. And the sad truth is I didn't even know what was wrong with me. So my entire life, I felt restless, irritable, and discontented. And as a child, I just was always angry. I didn't know what was wrong with me. You know, um, I think every picture my, my parents took of me, I was kind of mad like this, you know. Um, now I just know I'm prone to getting resentments. I'm an alcoholic. Um, so I was born and raised in Taiwan. I moved here with my mom at the age of 10. My parents divorced and my mom had nowhere to go. So we moved to Beaverton, Oregon. Um, growing up, I just always felt like there was something wrong with me. I didn't know what it was. Um, I didn't have the language. Um, so we were poor. So I thought for a long time that being poor was my problem. You know, if I could just fix that. So I did. I put myself through college. I got a great job straight out of college. Um, I met Prince Charming. We fell in love. He moved me into a a big house in a gated community. So we had the Range Rover in the garage. I had the Rolex on my wrist. And, you know, um, I can really identify with Bill's story when he wrote, I had arrived, you know, at a young age, in my tw early 20s, you know, I had everything at my disposal, yet I was so absolutely miserable. I just didn't know what was wrong with me. My favorite pastime was sitting there with cigarette in one hand and a martini in the other trying to figure out what was wrong with me. You know, I just had no answers. So, you know, I made a mess of that relationship. I just figured it must be him, you know? So over the course of my life, I took one hostage after another, looking for that person that was gonna fix me. You know, um, as a child, I became a quitter. Um, you know, I'm that type that would rather die than ask a question because I couldn't let you know that I, I didn't know. And as soon as I figured I couldn't be perfect, I quit. So, and that was how, that's just the only way I knew how to live. So, you know, um, I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. So I figured if I got married, had a baby, had my own family, that surely would fix me. 
So um, hostage after hostage, you know, the problem with that is when you go on a date with somebody and you pee on their couch, they're not calling you back. So, you know, I'm in that step four um, person. I was incapable of forming a true partnership. So I burnt through every relationship. I was that tornado just ripping through everyone's life. And if you got anywhere near me, I was going to suck the life out of you because I was such a taker. Um, I didn't know that my problem is that I'm selfish and I'm self-centered, right? So um, my first drunk was when I was 21. Um, I, I was a pretty square student. I got good grades and I waited until I was legally able to drink. So that was my first time really drinking anything um, I drank four screwdrivers and 11 different shots. This was my first time drinking. I didn't throw up. I weighed about 100 pounds, but I, I experienced this thing where I was uh, paralyzed from the neck down. So my first drunk, my drinking was abnormal. I just didn't know it. I didn't know that I had this allergy of the body. And later on, I would develop this phenomenon of craving, which only happens in my uh, my class, which is the alcoholic. So I got my five minute. Um, thank you, Deborah. So, um, you know, so this is just the way I drank and working when it worked, it was great. You know, it just took me to a place where I felt peace and comfort, you know, that same place that I can get to when I quiet myself today and go to God. It's the same feeling, you know? So, um, so in 2008, I got a DUI. I blew a 0.37 on a Sunday afternoon. Um, I came to your meetings, court ordered. I judged you. I was not ready. By January of 2009, I ended up at a homeless shelter at 36 years old. I am forever grateful for the Claire Foundation. It was there that I did my steps one, two, and three. I realized that I was going to die unless I reconsidered. And I remembered you people. You guys had planted the seed. I thought maybe you guys can help me. So I got sober in the Pacific group. And um, what my first sponsor did was outline my, my program of recovery, seven meetings a week, seven commitments, get there an hour early, call her at 745, and that's what I did. Life was great. I got sober. It worked. And I worked through the steps. And at five years of sobriety, I moved here to, uh, to Florida with my husband. And um, I got away from the meeting. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't plug into the meetings here. So I slowly cut back. What happened to me was I was a year dry and I took a drink. I drank for four days and I'm incredibly grateful that I made it back. I'll be celebrating five years um, coming back in June, and I'm forever grateful. You know, what I've learned, thank you so much, Nancy. I, I see you clapping for me. What I've learned in AA is this. God always has a better plan, you know. Um, my husband and I tried for four years to get pregnant, and I got my one minute. So, um, you know, after all my failed fertility attempts, um, it just didn't happen. No baby. And you know, my my friend Chuck C from Hollywood is on this call tonight. And you know, he came up to me and he said, Cindy, I don't know what God's plan for you, but I know it's a good one. And I believed him and I didn't have to drink. So if you're new, I'd like to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous and tell you that today I feel deeply loved. I found God 
through the steps, through working with the sponsor, to doing a lot of service I never wanted to do. Um, and I'm here today by the grace of God. Um, I hope that you'll keep coming back. Thank you. Our second 10 minute speaker is Joseph. Hi everyone, my name is Joseph and I am an alcoholic. My sobriety date is August uh, 24th, 2013. Uh, my sponsor is a guy named Irwin. My home group is outside of the pandemic is the uh, Bread and Roses Men's Stag on Saturday mornings in Pacific Palisades. And uh, right now currently on in the during this pandemic, my home group has become the Sunday morning uh, Joe and Charlie meeting that I started with my fiance. Um, and you know, uh, which you're all welcome to join. Thank you. Um, I'd like to thank Atlantic group for inviting me to speak. I got sober in New York. Um, and my first meeting was a 12th street workshop. And I met my first sponsor who then introduced me to, uh, the Atlantic group there. Uh, but my first meeting there, I had two guys who were chairing were from Atlantic Group. And unbeknownst to me, I was learning how important service work was the foundation of my recovery or would become. Uh, I Let's see, uh, stats. I got sober, eh, whatever, 37 now. I've been sober for almost seven years, so around 30. Um, but uh, I, I, I drank pretty much my whole life. I come from a long line of... Uh, of uh, successful alcoholics, uh, and um, you know, it's uh, it's just I grew up Irish Catholic. It, it was part of you know, my first shot was seven years old when uh, at at um, at uh, St. Patrick's Day in a bar. My mom, who, who was sober at the time and is sober, bought me the drink, and uh, as like a rite of passage, and then I was promptly beat up for drinking by my parents. <laughs> like a week later when I, cause I drank on my own. It's so like my whole concept of like right and wrong and like up and down is so messed up from the get go. Um, I really had no compass for living uh, my entire life. And it just kind of was me making, creating stories to live by and, uh, and just, just surviving, just being on survival mode my entire life and alcohol, you know, I, I, I love, uh, I carry a, a small big book with me everywhere. If you're new or you're unsure, um, I can say this, I've learned more about my alcoholism staying sober than I ever did drinking. And, um, and that was huge for me. It's just giving it time, sticking around so that I could actually identify as an alcoholic and understand, clear my head and understand what it meant to be an alcoholic. Um, my uh, my drinking taught brought me to a lot of dark places. Um, built up a whole wall of shame that I either used as a crutch or as a excuse. You know, um, I really just was completely lost my entire life. And and uh, in the book, I like uh, the first speaker. Uh, they're restless, irritable, and discontented unless, again, they can experience this sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking the first few drinks. I mean, when I first drank and found the camaraderie and the, you know, I, I identified with alcoholics very early on. We drank together. We ditched life together. 
we, uh, you know, I, there was nothing alcohol and, um, couldn't, couldn't cure for me. Um, and, uh, I, I'd been introduced to these rooms because both my parents were, were sober growing up. I'd never seen them drink, but I've, I, I guess you could say I've probably seen them dry now that I know a little bit more about my disease. Um, and, um, you know, I, I went to meetings and, and I tried this thing out. I knew I had a lot of problems, but I don't think I really admitted to my innermost self or could admit to my innermost self that I was a real alcoholic. Um, I didn't, I, I, I really only identified with the uh, exterior problems that I thought could be solved by stopping drinking, you know, and that's, that in turn is where I, what I mean by you don't have to drink again to find out you're, if you're a real alcoholic, just don't do the steps and stick around. That's, that's what I did. And I eventually needed a drink really bad or something else to deal with the problems that I couldn't solve because I wasn't doing the step work. And I find that today in my sobriety, my problems are all of my own making, you know, life is going to happen. And, you know, I can't fight the world any more than I can walk through walls. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've learned very quickly that uh, I need to uh, keep things very simple for myself. Thank you. I see that. Um, and, you know, one of the ways to do that is I, I, I'm honest with at least one person in my life completely. My sponsor knows everything. I, it's very important for me to keep that kind of that clarity and uh, and, um, you know, uh, like because like I said, in my entire life, I've had nothing, no direction. So what Alcoholics Anonymous has given me, first and foremost, I had to separate myself from my solution, my solution, which is my drinking. And um it took time to build a new solution to let this thing happen. But what I found was what I love about Atlantic group is, you know, I often joke, I need 12 steps to tie my shoes. That's what I needed. And it's what Atlantic group gave me. They gave me a sense of discipline. They gave me a sense of being able to show up, uh, being a part of the, uh, the, uh, gauntlet. I mean, I cried for like the first like month, just standing in line. And, uh, I can't remember his name, but I would just stand right next to me and just, just jokingly, I hated him at the time for it, asked me, so how's today? And I'm sitting there crying. But that camaraderie and then going to, to uh, birthdays, you know, one year's anniversaries afterwards, going and getting coffee is something I really miss. And people always ask me, what's the difference between New York, Chicago, and L.A. sobriety? And I'd say in New York, when you enter a meeting, you get there early and everyone's around with their sponsors going through the big book. In Chicago, people are just with their sponsors. It just feels very sponsor orientated. It's not really, you don't get into the steps right away. You, it's, it's just like my sponsor has me doing this. My sponsor has me doing that. And then in LA, it's very social. So it's really about like getting in with like, get a group of guys and go out for coffee a lot. We'll get to the steps, we'll get to the steps. I'm grateful I got sober in New York because the steps is where I found the relief, you know, and step one, two, and three, was broken down for me. It's like one, I'm in trouble. Two, I believe these people can help. And three, I'm going to let them. It was said in a little bit more colorful language, but I'll spare, I'll spare you that. Uh, two, uh, four, I got to write basically an autobiography as my life as I saw it, you know, and, and I'd never done that. You know, I often hear something I live by is if I want to know how to get somewhere, I have to know where I'm at. And that's what step four did for me. And, um, and, uh, 
you know, my sponsor helped me unwrap that and gets make sense of like my, my, my reality to get to reality. And, uh, you know, um, six and seven, I was told I work on a daily basis and that changes, you know, I mean, from, and since the beginning, how I work six and seven are completely different learning about what's getting in the way of me being most effective in my life. And it always starts with fear or actually it always starts with anger. And then we unpack that with my sponsor and it really comes down to fear. And then we play the, and then what game and then what, and then what, and we, and I have to unpack my moment to moment life in that way with the steps. And, uh, eight and nine, um, give me, uh, clarity on like my relationships and like what part I play in those things in my life and, uh, being able to let certain ghosts rest and move on and not be scared of what's going to happen in the future because I've let go of the past in a proper way that I can be proud of. And 10, I was told is not a maintenance step because I don't want to maintain anything. I want to continue to grow and get better. My, uh, sponsor in Atlantic group told me that, um, and, uh, you know, 11 is like, I look at that as like, a, I'm an asthmatic as well. And I need a breathing medication or a rescue inhaler. And I either take one or the other one helps me not have to have an asthma attack and create any more damage. And I take that once a day, but if I don't, and I have an asthma attack, I cause damage and I need to use the rescue inhaler. So meditation for me is that medication I have to take every day for my soul, my spirit. Thank you. I see that. And, uh, and, um, you know, 12 is what I do before this pandemic. I, and I, I, a lot of time going to hospitals and institutions or helping out in meetings and passing this thing forward and making this the, f- the first part of my life from waking up and going back to going to bed. And through that, I have a life that's beyond my wildest dreams. And, and, uh, that is something I never thought I could ever say with complete honesty. And, uh, and, uh, I'm, prepping i'm i'm getting married i have a sober home and i have hope and that's all i ever wanted was just to be able to fall asleep at night with hope and i'm grateful for that and for you and uh, all the sponsors and men and women in my life that have got me to this point and with that i'll i'll end thank you tonight is nancy hello everyone I'm an alcoholic. I belong to Ancaster 12 and 12. My name's Nancy. Um, good. Thank God we're still on gallery view. I was doing this a couple nights ago and uh, I was on speaker view and I thought, oh my God, that like epitomizes my disease. The last thing I need is me talking to me. Um, it's really, it's really nice to be here and nice to see some uh, familiar faces. Thank you, uh, Rich, for asking me. I, uh, I come from a little town about uh, 45 minutes southwest of Toronto. It's called Dundas. Uh, it's a pretty small town. We like to say, been there, Dundas, you know. It's, uh, it's beside a bigger, uh, a bigger city called Hamilton, and that's where, I, that's where I sobered up. I have been sober since August 28, 1993, and on that night I was celebrating my 29th birthday. My sponsor is a wonderful woman named Norma, who I'm told, I, uh, my friend Kate says, that is an awesome name for a sponsor, Norma. Um, I grew up north of Toronto in an old farmhouse. We moved around a lot uh, when I was growing up, and uh, we moved uh, 17 times before we settled in this, in this old uh, 
farmhouse. It was a second brick house built in Ontario, and it was condemned at the time, but my mother set upon fixing it up. My father uh, reminds me of the character Willie Loman from Death of a Salesman, and we just kept moving and trying to get better, or things were going to be good around the corner, you know, and, and that was that was my dad. Um, my mother is an educated woman. She had gone to the University of Glasgow, and they came from Scotland to Canada to build a life, and they were to have a big family. They had six kids. They had a son, and then they had five daughters, and I'm in the middle of the girls. I have two older and two younger sisters. My mother really stressed education. You know, it was a ticket, and she wanted her children that way. And my older siblings were these really successful kids. You know, they were just good at everything. And I was very busy shoplifting and getting in trouble and, you know, hanging out with boys and getting detention. And we used to have these living room meetings about Nancy. And there was, you know, Nancy was a problem. And I was much more of a, a you know, an observer than a participant in those meetings. But very early on, I was sort of the, the problem, you know. Um, one of the things that I did do, though, that was different than these uh, successful siblings was acting. I, I just liked, I loved doing that. When I was growing up, Carol Burnett was my hero, and I used to redo her sketch work and in a really weird serendipitous route. I'm back sort of doing that, and I, I just liked that. And when I was 14 years old in grade nine, I was in this high school musical, and at the end of the run of that play, there was a cast party, and I got really drunk. I remember I got drunk on beer and rye and creme de mint. I know, right? Look at you. I know it was gross and it didn't look any better coming up. So, um, and at the time I had this big ache and crush on the lead in the play and I thought John was great. And being drunk, I had the courage to uh, talk to the boy, flirt with the boy, start kissing the boy. And then I threw up on him. And uh, that was on the Friday night. And on the Monday morning in the halls of that high school, I could feel people looking at me. They were looking at me. And it was this look, you know, the morning after look that people give you that, that, that I would get that look. And it was a combination of uh, contempt and pity and curiosity. You know, it was that combination look where people would say, do you know what you said? You know, do you know what you did? And I hated that look hated that look. I went along in high school and then uh, in my last year of high school, I just decided to like pick it up. And this would happen periodically in my life where my self-will would kick in and I would be fine. You know, I would be fine. And my last year was kind of like that. And I got really good grades and I got really fit and I got a lead in the play that year and it won a bunch of awards. And then I went to university the following um, and uh, and in my first year, I got really uh, I gravitated to the party crowd, got a job in the campus pub and uh, and I started to do. Um, and I did very well academically, except for one course. Somehow, I always managed to fail something. Or, or I had this nasty, painful pattern of behavior where I would sabotage my success. You know, I would get close to getting what I said I wanted. And then I would just do something at the last minute or the 11th hour to screw it up. And it was a it, it's a painful pattern of behavior that I struggled with for years. You know, I um, I I just needed to make sure that, you know, what, when the big book says to him, the alcoholic life is the only normal one. I am comfortable living an unmanageable life. I know what it feels like to live in chaos and drama. And I can have this eerie calmness when I go through 
chaos. And and my life was a little bit like that. And I was as addicted to living a, 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 an unmanageable life as I was alcohol. Um, I went along in university and, uh, and I used to drink and drive a lot. It was a huge part of my story and I have lost my car more times than I can tell you. My car was full of those drunk bumps, you know, I had wrecked the car and, and, uh, um, I just, I had this death, which I had this, a very odd habit of getting absolutely loaded and getting behind the wheel of a car, music up, window down, and driving, drive, drive, drive. Um, one day, I came out of the residence, like the dormitory on campus, and uh, um, and I used to, I, I would drink and drive, and I would lose the car. And this one day, I came out of the uh, this residence. I had partied there the night before. I was with this friend, and lo and behold, there's my car in the parking lot, and once again, having no recollection of having driven it the night before, only this time, this time, there's something hanging underneath the car. And I hadn't, um, I couldn't bear to look at what it was. And, and I had seen it, but my friend had not. And he immediately starts giving me grief because once again, I've been drinking and driving and he's telling me to go, you know, bring it home, meet him in the cafe for lunch, but I can't get in the car, you know, but because I have that ability to live in pain and, and to be calm through crisis. Um, and because I couldn't bear to look at what I might've done. I, you know, I got in that car and I pulled out dragging whatever it was behind me. And I came along the edge of the campus and the parking guy in the kiosk stops me and he says, miss, you got something hanging underneath your car. And, and so someone's noticed, so I have to look under and I do. And, and it was all it was, was a huge clump of like landscaping grass. I took out a chunk of campus and I, um, and I tried to let myself think, wow, you almost out of proportion. The absolute truth is that I know how much damage I can do. I know how dangerous I am. I knew for a long time that I was making it very difficult and dangerous for people to love me. And and when I came into A the first time and I heard people say that they thought they were bad, I knew that I was toxic. I knew that there was something just so fundamentally broken in me, you know? And the only thing that I could bring home this toxicity to is that I do not possess the, the gene, the ability to love and be loved. I just, I don't have that. You know, normal people don't do the things that I did. And, uh, you know, as it says in the 12 and 12 in our fourth step, uh, you know, inability to form a true partnership. I don't, I didn't have that. So um, anyway, I went along in school and then after a bad sexual assault, I started drinking as the big book says, um, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation. And so, you know, because uh, drinking is starting to affect me, I, um, I didn't sit final exams that year, and I instead hid. I hid. I, I, I hid in the fourth floor of our campus library up in the back resource section while the rest of the students are in the big gymnasium writing their final exams, and things are settling down, and I'm getting real consequences for my drinking. So I need to – so that usually serves up a geography cure in my world. And so – um, I, I went home 
uh, to the place uh, near to the farmhouse where I grew up. And, and when I was growing up there, my family had befriended uh, a, uh, an elderly couple, and I had started to take care of Charlie more and more. And they were a childless, um, uh, retired farming couple, and they liked all of my family, but they especially loved me, and I liked that they liked me. It made me feel special. And they never had any kids of their own, but they made they, they always called me kid, you know. And um, Charlie, and when Sadie had died, Charlie needed someone. So I make the falsely altruistic excuse that, well, you know, Charlie's health is failing. I'm going to quit school and I'm going to take care of him. And so that's that's what I did. And uh, and I can tell you that it was some of the worst parts of my drinking. Um, and it was difficult. Um, Charlie was Charlie was old and he was uh, opinionated and he was often cranky. And I can tell you, I have a big soft spot in my heart for grumpy, opinionated old men. And, you know, in and that's a good thing, because in AA, oh, my God. <laughs> it's like kicking an anthill in some of my meetings, right? And thank God, if you are new, and there's a bunch here tonight, um, saddle up beside some old men and women because they have a story to tell and wisdom to impart and uh, and wisdom to share. Um, so I started taking care of Charlie, and, and uh, to make a long story short, one night I left him home, I uh, go to a party and to drink and I passed out and I left him there and he fell in the night and when I woke up I um, the next time I saw him was in the hospital a neighbor had found him gotten him to the hospital and I went to emerge to see him after going home and having a neighbor meet me at the house and telling me what I had done and I went into that emergency room after talking to the nurse and she's telling me all of the tests that they're running and stuff. And, and I go into this room to look at him and Charlie just looked at me and he said, where were you kid? Where were you? And I never have the words to tell you how much I had hated my life, you know, just self loathing was complete. I couldn't believe how much harm and how much just, I wreck things. And so um, because of that, I, I shared in the country kitchen of that farmhouse with my mother later that day, I shared that I think I have a drinking problem. And I do not know if you have shared with a non-alcoholic concern about your drinking, but let me tell you, they blow that way out of proportion. They, she wanted to know, what do you mean? What? Like, what, what, why do you drink? When do you drink? Where do you drink? What do you drink? Wah! And uh, so that freaked my alcoholic mind out. And I immediately regretted that I had said anything in the first place, you know. So uh, but my family, we are uh, we are academic atheists. We just like to uh, take degrees and learn more and put forth the effort. And so because of that, to make a long story short, I got enrolled in a uh, Toronto Treatment Center pilot project where they were having a controlled drinking program. And uh, so they were going to teach me how to drink and I was enrolled in this course. And the deal was I was to have two drinks three times a week. Look at you all not shaking your, I know, I know, I know, right? Like it doesn't exist anymore. Like shocking, I know. And um, so I, I got signed up for this 10 week course and I would save them all up or, you know, whatever. Anyway, it didn't work for me and I've yet to meet the alcoholic for whom that works. But anyway, 
I, uh, after shortly thereafter, you know, Charlie had passed away and I knew that he and Sadie were leaving their house to me. And so I was living at, living there country and commuting, working, and I had two girlfriends, roommates living with me, uh, girlfriends from school, and but they were quickly on my case about drinking, and I knew that there was something wrong with me, you know, I knew that there was some ill-defined void, there was something, something was wrong, but what I thought is that it was my education, I had dropped out, if I was educated, I would feel better, so I go back to the university town where I had dropped out and I get my degree and I don't, I don't feel any better. So I think, well, maybe I need to make money. People who have money tend to look good, so they must feel good. So I set about making money. And at first I lost money trying to make money. And then when I made a little bit of money, it did not change anything, did not change anything. And so I thought, okay, it's not education. It's not money. I know I need a man right i need that look at all the women are laughing they i i know right like what a mess what a mess what a mess i took a couple hostages and made them entirely responsible for my happiness which is the quickest recipe for disaster right but i couldn't let go of one until i had a firm grasp on the other so you know it's a polite way of saying there was some overlap there because you know how tarzan swings through the jungle and he doesn't let go of one vine until he's got a firm grasp on the next because otherwise i would be alone and <laughs> no no we don't do that oh cruel thing to do and and uh what a mess it was December 1992. I was in this uh, new job. I had been with this company two weeks. I'm reasonably intelligent and I'm still getting an okay job. And I was down, they invited me down to this conference in Orlando. And uh, there I work really hard on the Friday and I work really hard on the Saturday. And on the Saturday night, there's a banquet. The banquet has an open bar. I know, right? And um, I got so drunk. I got inappropriate drunk, you know, I got sticking my index finger in the president's chest drunk. I don't know, in, in our parts up here, we call, uh, we call that a CLM or career limiting move. You are not, you're not going to be there long. So uh, I breach a protocol and a bad move. And on the following day, as I haul my sorry hungover body out of that hotel room and I, I, I'm on the plane heading back to Toronto and I'm sitting beside a man who happens to be uh, in the company and he just happens, you know, he had just happened to say, wow, you were a real party girl last night. And I said, I don't really remember. And he said, wow, a blackout is a real sign of alcoholism. And, you know, I was slapped with that word, you know, I was struck and he sat beside me. My higher power has these coincidences in my life. And he sat beside me on the plane on the way back to Toronto. And he just happened to be wearing an AA ring. He just happened to be have, have just celebrated his one year. And he just happened to tell me his story, you know, and it's not like I was that willing. I was buckled in. Where was I going? The guy kept going on and on and on and on. And I heard his story and I was in your rooms. I was in the rooms a week later. And, uh, and that lasted for about six months because I have pride and fear, which are deeply intertwined and ego. And I could not admit powerlessness. Powerlessness turned out to be my um, the biggest speed bump. It's not a big dinner table conversation where I come from. And I and I, although I tried to sound like you sound and do what you do, I I just you know I I didn't. 
I didn't. And um, I had a sponsor, but only told her things selectively. Uh, you people had said, stay away from the men. You know, it's a fellowship, not a ship of fellows. I get that, you know, and uh, cheesy line that. And I six months later, I find myself drinking. And I discovered a level of four months of pain that I did not know existed. By that time, I was hanging on to my job by a thread, and I started drinking every single night. And I stayed in the basement of my house, and I was a TV junkie. I just watched uh, television around the clock, you know, and I would I would watch uh, David Letterman back when it was on at 12.30. This is the early 90s, right? And I... Um, and then there was this jazz music thing and then I'd pass out for a couple hours and at 4.30 in the morning there was this early claymation thing called Davy and Goliath and I would watch, you know that Kim, you totally know that so the, uh, I would watch Davy and Goliath and that is how I led my pathetic, miserable, alcoholic life on August 28, 1998, I was turning 29 years old. My friend Kyle from school uh, called me up and he said, Nance, it's your birthday, let's, let's go out. And we got loaded. We got really drunk and we came back to my place to drink some more before we were gonna hit the bars for last call. And when we were back at my place before last call, Kyle was loaded and he was sick and he was throwing up off my back deck. And all I remember thinking was, is that man, this guy keep throwing up, I'm missing all. And, you know, that was going to be a problem. But he did it home. And, and, and then that night, all I did was go to bed. And when I woke up, I was 29. I was 29. And, and there was something eerie and very disturbing about that number. Because what I had, was what I had, that moment of clarity, that bottom, as old Ivan G., our past delegate, used to say, you know, when God paralyzes the liar in us just enough to let the truth seep in, I saw my life at 39 and 49 and 59, and nothing was changing. I was always going to be in and out of jobs. I was always going to be in and out of relationships. I was always going to be toxic and I just knew I absolutely knew that that was going to be my life you know and I just it's it frightened me I did not come to AA because I thought I would die I came to AA because I absolutely knew that I would live I knew that my family comes from some resources they were going to let me live on the street I knew that I was going my life and others down I was always going to live like that I know a lot of us blow ourselves out in car accidents or suicides but most of us take a long long time to die and we take out kids and we take out jobs and we take out our integrity and i knew i absolutely knew that i was going to do that and i just didn't want that i just and i didn't and that was it that was my worst that was my last drunk. It wasn't the worst thing that ever happened to me. I didn't get put in the back of a police cruiser. I didn't wreck the car. I wasn't assaulted. I didn't have my mother crying. It wasn't the worst thing that I ever did. But I was tired. And uh, and I saw my life. And, uh, and so I went into this treatment center. And, oh, that's a whole other story. I got extra weeks for attitude issues but part of my attitude issues in the in the treatment center was due to the fact that I kept getting mistaken for a therapist 
which I love because that is my shtick. There is a lot of pain hidden behind middle-class respectability, and I promise you I have been in some lovely homes where women die. I finally got out of the treatment center and... Um, and I fell into the belly of AA. I fell into the middle of AA. You know, our boys out west say, stay in the middle of the herd. You know, like a good predator, uh, uh, the alcohol picks off the ones who stray, stray from the herd. And I went to a meeting every day for the first two years of my sobriety. I just did. I just did. I needed to have your voices louder than the ones in my head. And I had a car, but I didn't have a valid driver's license or insurance or money to repair it. So I was on the bus. I was on the bus in um, Hamilton, Ontario. And you won't know, but the year 93, 94 that I got sober, we had one of these record breaking winters, you know, and, and storms on top of storms and schools and businesses were regularly closed but the bus would slug its way through the city and members of my group gave me grapevines and I would read them on the bus and then I would have a meeting and read them on the way back and despite this record winter Alcoholics Anonymous was open it was always open <laughs> and I that deeply humbled me and I did not know why you would do that, you know, but God forbid somebody needed a meeting and that person was me and Alcoholics Anonymous in Canada made sure that I had a meeting. And from that experience, it brought to me a love of service that to this day I just carry. I, I've been, you know, did all the jobs in DCM and area service and too long a story. But I can tell you that too many of us only get two out of the three. We have a triangle. We have recovery, unity, and service. And we have 12 steps, 12 traditions, and 12 concepts. And don't rip yourself off of not giving of yourself. For those that are new, Alcoholics Anonymous is a wonderful place to be, but hasn't quite been complete until you got here. Because I don't know what you're bringing, but you're bringing something. You know, maybe your maybe your gift to Alcoholics Anonymous is the uh, gift of sponsorship, or you like you know hospitals and institutions, or you love bookending the meeting with the opening and the closing of the of the you know the coffee urns or whatever. I don't know. Maybe your thing is that Excel spreadsheet for the seventh tradition in the treasurer's report. Whatever. I've seen it. People love it. But whatever your thing is, um, I don't know what it is, but you're bringing it. You're bringing it, and and uh, and we need you. We need your thing. We need your thing. Um, I sobered up in meetings and garage sales because these two guys, they're timers. They they sponsor each other. They're sober longer than I don't know a couple days after the cooled maybe and they they go to all these garage sales and they took me and uh, they would pick me up early in the morning and we would run around to all of these garage sales and at two o'clock in the afternoon my head was full of AA I would have all this stuff for you know four bucks and my stomach hurt from too many Tim Hortons you guys know Tim Hortons that's our okay good lots of nods yeah yeah that is our temple of 12-step worship in Canada that's where we go after the meeting and uh, and they sobered me up and I owe my life to the those who have come before 
Um, Mary, Mary F. was a fantastic woman. She was a pioneer in Alcoholics Anonymous. She had met Bill Wilson at the, uh, when in the 1960 World Conference. And, um, and I have been blessed to have been, uh, uh, sponsored and have sat and listened to those who have come before. And I don't, I wish there was a big enough word to, say other than thank you i mean how can that possibly be right but i can tell you that when i thought that i was toxic the only thing that i thought is that i don't have the ability to love and be loved but i can tell you that you taught me otherwise i am a mother hard job right um i am a friend and a daughter and uh, and a sister and a wife and a volunteer and a neighbor. I am a sponsor and a sponsee. And I get to be all of these things because at the hub and the wheel of all of those roles is Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous saved my life and will save yours if you if you give yourself to us, if you have step three, if you get away from the bondage of self, really good word bondage and sometimes you know you know sometimes if you're new you hear some people speaking from the podium and they sound like their life is all good you know as if it's it was it sounds like some sort of law and order episode you know it was all good or i'm sorry it was all bad no it's all good right dun, dun. not true not true you know that that's not true right motherhood is hard work is hard marriage is hard and together i see you and together we trudge the road trudge is a really really good word to walk laboriously with purpose and is that not what we do here is that not what we do thank god for you thank god that i have found you and that uh, we are the future of alcoholics anonymous this is a fascinating digital pivot that our fellowship is undergoing, and uh, and it'll be fascinating to see how we move forward. Bill Wilson once wrote, we must honor the past and prepare for the future. And I think today we have uh, an especially adept responsibility to carry, carry the message. Um, Rich and others and all of you at the Atlantic Group, thank you so much for inviting me into your homes. Um, I... I I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know how to um, express it better than that, but thank you for saving my life.